appreciate everything that that you talked about. Um, also, want to thank Nathan for preaching last week, for preaching the word last week. Uh, that was that was fantastic. Um, really enjoy when he when he preaches and teaches us the word of God. I also want to welcome everybody who is joining us this morning that are not our consistent guests. And um, I want to welcome those from Atlanta, as, uh, as, as Micah um, just talked about. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you're new here um, uh, with us, I want to welcome you as well. Um, uh, especially want to welcome the, uh, the Garbita family for coming back to us and joining us, uh, David and Noemi. And so much for, uh, um, I, I keep saying that they're home, so I don't know why they keep leaving, but hey, it's all right. It's all good. It's all good. Um, you know, um, another thing that I'm, I'm thankful for this morning is that we all stayed safe this week in those storms. Um, I, you can see the rem- some, some remnants of it as you walk around the building, especially our sign. Our brand new sign is 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 uh is laying on the grass there, but you know, amen. It's all good. We will, yeah, it will be redeemed, right? We'll 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 get another sign sign up there, or because I think that one is damaged. But amen. Such is life. So again, we are continuing with our Genesis series. Um, I hope you've been enjoying the series. I hope you've been doing some of the like following the reading plan, if you if you have been doing that, you should be quite your way through more than half of Genesis by now. Some people are looking like they haven't been reading it, but it's okay. No big deal. Um, we carry on. Um, so what, what I want to talk about today is coming out of Genesis 18 and 19. That God is so merciful that he will stoop or lower himself to bargain with humanity. That's how merciful our God is, amen? That he will stoop to our lower place to bargain with humanity. And he really doesn't have to do that. I want us to remember that God cares for people far more than we possibly can. Like I said, I enjoyed Nathan's message, you know, and like Nathan, I think Abraham's story is quite intriguing. What a relationship he had with God. An amazing relationship where even in in James 2, verse 23, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So awesome. I mean, I hope I hope I can be called God's friend. Isn't that something we should aspire for, right? To be called God's friend. Abraham was righteous, but he was also God's friend. A part of what we will learn today is that Lot to the contrary, appeared to be friend of the world. Now, in some parts, it talks about the fact that Lot was a righteous man, right? But his actions kind of 
show that he was also a friend of the world. You know, this was a great downfall for him and even more so for his family. But let's go to God in prayer to begin today. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer, God, just so grateful for your love, your grace, your mercy. We're grateful for all that you do for us, how you help us. Father, um, help us to focus on your word this morning. Help us to give all our hearts to uh, your message that you're trying to communicate to us. Father, I pray that this will not be my message, but it will be yours, driven by the Holy Spirit. For your son's name we pray. Amen. But let us, before we begin here, let's go back, or as we begin, let's go back a little bit. Uh, we're continuing kind of where Nathan left off last week, right? And so, you know, when God appeared to Abraham and commanded him to leave his, his home for an unknown destination, Abraham took his wife, right, and his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot. And they took everything they had, right, and they, they went and they traveled. They, they went to where they, they started on, as God told them to do. But as time passed, they traveled together, they both grew rich in terms of the size of their herds, right? That was, wealth back then was, okay, herds, right? And other other thing, types of things like that. Um, there's no bank account to show, no stocks, right? Um, and so to make sure they, they remained allies, they decided it was best if they separated. And so Abraham surrendered to Lot and let him choose which direction he would go. He said, look, it's your choice. Where do you want to go? And Lot surveyed his options and chose greener pastures. Because the Jordan Valley was like the garden of the Lord, Genesis 13.10, right? In Genesis 13.10 through 12, it says, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. So he didn't pitch his tent in Sodom. He pitched his tent near Sodom, right? So, so Lot headed east with his family, and Abraham continued on his way. And somehow Lot went from being a farmer, pitching his tent outside of Sodom, to a resident of the city of Sodom, right? So he had, he looked on this place and he's like, oh, that's so great, that's so awesome. And he pitched his tent outside of Sodom. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, later on, he became a full resident of Sodom. See, what trouble has your eyes gotten you into? Our eyes can get us into some serious trouble, can they? The stuff that we look at and it just seems so enticing that we, we don't even just put our, our tents next to it. We got to be residents of it. We got to get all up in there, right? 
And that's what our eyes does. It draws us into these things. Unfortunately, as the story, the story today will show, the longer Lot lived in Sodom, the more like the city he became. The longer he lived there, it's almost like it just becomes a part of him. Or he becomes a part of it. You know, Kevin, uh, Kevin Garvey has a thriving business in Broward County, Florida. He's the only trapper licensed by the county to remove nuisance alligators. The only one. Good job for him. Right? The top spot in the county, Weston, a meticulously groomed, planned city. In fact, my brother and sister-in-law live right down from Weston. They pretty much are, live right up from Pembroke Pines in between Weston, right? And they have, by the way, a nice pond or marsh behind the house. I'm not going to go any further than that. But, and so what happens is it seems like the homeowners there in Weston who spent up of $700,000 for their homes did not expect nor appreciate giant reptiles in their idyllic new community, right? And that's probably gator heaven out there, says Jim Huffstadt, a spokesman for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, noting that Weston and other planned communities are often built right on top of the marshlands that were previously inhabited by these offensive reptiles. So just sighting an alligator in, in an area like Western, filled with families, with children, is grounds for removal and destruction of these alligators who were there before these wealthy $700,000 million homes in Western. And so such a story begs the question, how could anyone who moves into prime alligator habitat be surprised to see alligators there? Okay, they build these huge houses and, and they have even ponds in the back, they're man-made, right? And so these man-made ponds, because I've seen them, we lived in Florida for a long time, right? These man-made ponds, they have these water inlets and outlets, right? And sometimes what happens is these baby alligators come through there. And so these baby alligators, they grow up, and then you, you'll drive by one day on your way to work, and you see these alligators sunning, just chilling, just sunning out. And you're like, hold on. Where do I live? I just spent $700,000 to build this house. Why am I sharing it with these alligators? Because they were there before you. In the same way, why do so many Christians settle for lifestyles that invite trouble and then act so surprised when they fall into sinful conduct. They go, we go into, right, and settle for such lifestyles that invite trouble 
right? Like dating is one of them, right? And, and as Christians, we try to date different from the world, but we put ourselves in this situation where, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just you know, drive along with this, with, with this girl and we're just going to have fun. And you put yourself in a situation that's compromising. And then when the trouble happens, you're like, oh, my goodness, how could that have happened? Really? Because sin was there before you. It was camping out before you. Don't be surprised. Don't be just, don't come across these things and, and have it, you know, it's almost like it blows our mind that we as Christians could be involved in all of this. And so I want us to think about, as we go on with this message, think about this. The next time you find yourself desiring greener pastures, just remember Lot. So as we continue through this story, just remember Lot as you desire green pastures. I desire a better job. I desire a better place to live. I'll pay $700,000 for it in less than a year. As you desire these things, right? greener pastures, or what appears to be greener pastures. New place to live. Move to the big city. Just remember a lot. Are we a product of our environment? What surrounds you? Do you who do you surround yourself with? What kind of people do you surround yourself with? In the hopes, what are you in the hopes that you're going to help them change? Or are they causing you to change? Are you the product of them? Are they encouraging, discouraging? Or are your acquaintances toxic? Now, let's turn to Genesis 18. I think that was a mouthful. See, God is moral. We have a moral God, don't we? And so in Genesis 18, Genesis 18 begins with the Lord appearing to Abraham, right? And, and what happens is that a meal ensues, right? And some commentaries talk about the fact that it, was, it were two angels and it was the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because the, the scripture does say here, the Lord. And he communicates with the Lord. And so this meal ensues, right? And we find Abraham scurrying about and as well as a conversation on God's long-delayed promise to give Abraham a son. That's, another, that's a conversation that happens here in the beginning of Genesis 18. And the story then shifts to a remarkable internal dialogue that God is having with himself about his plans and his plans for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 17, it says, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Interesting question. The Lord announces his intentions to visit the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry of their sin. And in Genesis 18, 21 through 22, it says that I will go, go down and see if 
what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And it says, then the men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before who? The Lord. So these two men, they go off and they go down to Sodom. And the Lord stays. But here's the interesting thing that we see in that passage is that he wants to see firsthand if it is as bad as the outcry. And so the two men, the angels, depart and they go to the city. There's some great lessons here, guys. One is that God establishes the facts before passing judgment. We can learn from this, that he establishes the facts before he goes ahead and passes judgment. How many of us have heard one part of the story and we're like, oh, no. And we make a judgment. Right? It doesn't even happen in court. But between you and your friend, Oh, no, that's just one part of the story. I'm good. That's enough for me. But God establishes the facts before passing judgment. God decided he would take a final look at Sodom before casting judgment on them. Even though the outcry was so large, it wasn't just one person in Sodom that was complaining. The outcry was so large, So, but he still decided he would take a final look. Just in case the people decided to repent or change their ways. That's grace. Even God takes inventory of the facts before passing judgment. How many of us do that? How many of us take an inventory of what is factual before we start passing judgment on someone else? Do we do that? Do we condemn and punish on the basis of hearsay? Or are we willing to hear the whole story before reaching our conclusions? The other thing he does is is that God judges all people. There's no specific one of us that he may judge. He judges everybody. He judges based on one set of moral rules. Not different moral rules based on the individual, but one set of moral rules which we find here in the Old Testament and the Scriptures. We're all judged the same. God is morally predictable. We can predict what God will do on a moral level. God is a moral being. And He cares how we treat how we treat each other. I would even beg to say, I would even go as far as saying, and many will probably disagree, I'll go as far as saying that God cares about how we treat each other more than how we treat him. I think he cares more about how we treat one another as we see Paul writes so many, so many passages in scripture, we call one another scriptures, Right? God cares about how we treat one another. Because guess what? He can handle how you treat him. 
Can you can't handle how your brother treats you? Can you handle how your sister treats you? I would even beg to say that God looks on his creation and is concerned with how we treat one another. We have a moral God. But God is also morally challenged. He is challenged morally in this chapter. See, this is where the story takes an even more interesting turn, right? Abraham asked God if he is able to find 50 righteous people there, would he spare the city? And God states he would. Interesting. Abraham then negotiates, right? He negotiates with God. Moving the number lower and lower until he reaches 10 people. And God agrees if he discovers 10 righteous people in this city, he will spare the entire city. Genesis 18.32, then he said, May the Lord not be angry. <laughs> I tell you, Abraham is awesome. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found in this place? And God answers, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. But here's what's so awesome about Abraham. We see we have this, this, this is the God of the universe we're talking about. Right? The one who, who was there in the beginning. And out of nothing, he created everything. The one we've been reading about for the last four weeks. The one who made a covenant with Noah with the rainbow and everything and say, I will not destroy the whole world with a flood. But he is now willing to enter in negotiation with his creation to spare a large number of wicked people if there are a handful of righteous living among them. Now, yes, he did say he wouldn't, he, he made a covenant with Noah, right? Not going to destroy the whole world with a flood. But this town right here, boy, maybe unless you could find me some righteous people. And so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a story that displays both the holiness of God and his inability to be amongst him. And also the mercy of God, that he would show mercy to the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Seriously. I mean, I'm, I'm, every time I read this, I'm like, in all this city, not even 10? Not even 10 righteous people in that city? Imagine a gardener, right, who meticulously plans out their garden. And one day they discover weeds threatening to choke out the roses. And just report before pulling the weeds, the gardener, you know, some people talk to their plants, right? I hear that it probably even works. 
The gardener discusses his actions with the rose, with the rose, who begins to negotiate with the gardener to save the weeds. The roses say, hey, no, don't kill them all. Don't kill all these weeds. Now, I know this sounds like an absurd scenario, but at the same time, it's illustrative of what God did when he let one of his creations negotiate with him about saving Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it takes more than one to do a great good. But a single person can do immense evil. Single person. Abraham argued for the entire city to be saved because of the merits of a few. He stopped at 10, it seems... Because there has to be some kind of minimum, right? It could have been five, it could have been 15, but there has to be some kind of a minimum when it comes to evil. Like seriously, how many righteous people should be in this place? In a whole city. So he stops at 10 because he's thinking, man, this has to probably be the minimum. I'm here negotiating with God this whole time. I better not push my luck. So let me just stop right here at 10. You know, and I give I give him credit for trying. See, every individual has to do as much good as possible to improve their community, to improve their society. But unfortunately, one person cannot change an evil society. One person can't do it. But the way the world works, one evil person can do a whole lot of damage to society. One person's evil can damage a household. One person's evil can damage a church. One person's evil can damage a community. One person. One person's evil can wreck a family. You know, I heard that many... uh Many people believe that Lee Harvey Oswald, who assassinated John F. Kennedy, did not act alone. That's, many people believe that, but that he had accomplices. Though the evidence may be overwhelming that he did act alone, it is emotionally very difficult for people to accept that one person could do so much harm. One person. It would have probably been unlikely that there would have been a holocaust were it not for Adolf Hitler. One person. That tens of millions of Soviet citizens would have been murdered were it not for Stalin. One person. One person. Nevertheless, a small group as Abraham's appeal suggests can certainly make a moral impact. One small group can make a big impact for positive. And so when we look around us at God's church, shouldn't we be making a big impact? One person can cause so much evil. What about God's church? A small group, a group of people, a group dedicated to their creator. 
we should be making tremendous impact in our communities, in our families, in our church. Everywhere we go, one, two, three of us should make a big impact. Are we doing that? Guys, we got to fight evil. And if one person can do so much evil, what about us coming together as God's creation? As a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, not this world. We got to be making big impacts. In fact, most of the good that we see in the scriptures that has ever been achieved has been initiated by a small group of people. For instance, the small group of believers that brought about the abolition of slavery. Small group. And so we think about this moral impact of a tiny group of people known as the Jews. What impact? Here we have some, some guys fishing, right? And Jesus comes along and says, look, guys, not in these exact words, but follow me, right? And we'll fish for people. And he's saying, look, we're going to change the world. Just that small group. Do we even believe in that anymore? Do we look at that and are we, are we blown away by the fact that Jesus took some fishermen who really couldn't cut it to be chosen by a rabbi, so they went and they fished for a living. Fished and feed their, fed their family. And Jesus comes along and says, look, I want you I am choosing you to come follow me, and we're going to change the world. Some, some, some these, these unschooled men, as they call it, <laughs> changing the world. Impact takes more than one to do a great good, but a single person can do immense evil. Now, unfortunately, the men God sends into the city, right, into Sodom and Gomorrah are treated menacingly. They're treated menacingly and, and abusively by the residents. And they're unable to find the ten people God agrees to, and so God agrees to, that the ten people God agrees to spare the city for. However, God does save the people they find family and bring them out of the city before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when they leave, they're warned what? Don't look back. Keep going forward. Don't look back. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. You know, Jesus will later use this story to illustrate the importance of of being wholly committed to the arrival of the kingdom of God by remembering Lot's wife. In Luke 17, 31, it says, On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. And he turned back. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. 
Don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Don't look back. You know, Josephus, he's a first century Jewish historian, claims to have actually seen the pillar of salt that was once Lot's wife. And he says the imagery, and the image, imagery is very powerful. Why is it powerful? It's very powerful because don't stay still and look back. Don't stop and look back. Keep going forward in your Christian journey. We do different things that cause us to look back. And something back there just wants us to turn back and take another look. Don't look back. Don't go back. If you don't look forward and progress in life, you'll turn into a pillar. If you don't look forward and progress in your life, you will turn into a pillar and just be still and not progress. When you're always looking back, you become inorganic, lifeless. Sometimes we keep looking back. Some of us feel this thing about even our conversions, and we keep looking back. Some of us feel like, man, am I who I need to be? And we keep looking back. Do I have enough? We keep looking back. Am I enough? And we keep looking back. And what happens is you stop the progress and you become lifeless. We got to stop looking back. I did X when I, I did X back in the day. Good, fine, leave it there. Stop looking back. Just leave it. It's an insecurity. I don't know why Lot's wife looked back. I have no idea. It could be because of her daughters. Could be because of family. Family can make you look back. She was probably wondering, are they going to be okay with those husbands of theirs who decided to stay? Don't look back. I get the concern. It's your children. Don't look back. Let them look forward. Why are we looking back? Who is important to you? In life, we either progress or we regress. What doesn't grow contracts. Don't look back. Be committed. Charles Spurgeon, in, in his popular, um, in a popular devotional, Morning and Evening, says... Perseverance is the badge of true saints. The Christian life is not a, be a beginning only in the ways of God, but also a continuance in the, sa in the same as long as life lasts. It is with a Christian as it is with the great Napoleon.
conquest has made me what I am, and conquest must continue. You know, we can't be sure of why she looked that way. There may be a number of different reasons, as there is in our life why we look that way. You know, Lot's wife, her looking back, and Lot moving from from greener pastures into the city of Sodom, is reminiscent of the attitude many people have when they remember sin naively. What happens is that there's no alarm and there's no concern about who we are before God and what insults God. And so even the nation of Israel experienced this. And after after crying out to God to save them from captivity in Egypt, they would later turn around and speak so fondly of the food they ate and how good they'd had it when they were slaves. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Man, some of us are terribly casual about sin. And the way we talk about it, the way we deal with it, is even more casual. You know, God rescued Lot for Abraham's sake. He rescues us for Jesus' sake. There is nothing about Lot that he should have been rescued. There's nothing about him that he should have been rescued. There's nothing about us that we should be rescued. You know, Peter had not said this according to John G. Butler. We would never have concluded that Lot was a savior. For Lot's conduct did not manifest that he was a child of God. His behavior didn't show it. There's nothing about us that we should be rescued for Jesus' sake. But in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 it says, And to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Dan mentioned in this communion. So what are some lessons that we can learn from this? You know, God is so merciful that he will will lower himself as I mentioned earlier, to bargain with humanity. He will bring himself down to bargain with us. God is a moral and morally challenged. God is moral and morally challenged. For the first time in human history here, as, as we look at this interaction between him and Abraham, 
And though God made a covenant with Noah not to destroy mankind, he did pervert to destroying a city because of the very same reason, sin. It takes more than one to do great good, but a single person will do immensely good. Which one are you? Which will you be? Lot needed Abraham. Who do you need? Again, John G. Butler, he says, Lot needed Abraham. Without Abraham, Lot will experience a terrible moral and spiritual decline that will leave him shorn of everything good in his life. And so the last thing I want us to take from this and learn from this, it's simple. Next time you find yourself desiring greener pasture, just remember Lot. Just remember Lot and his story. Whenever you think about, man, I want better, it's okay to be ambitious. But just think about Lot and be careful. And as we close, I just want to read what we're doing is... I want to change the way we look at our great friend. Right? We're about to go out there and we're about to eat together. But I want to change it from just, okay, we're just bringing potluck and let's run out there and eat. But I want to just read a passage each time to get our minds ready to eat together, to spend time together. And so in Matthew 14, verse 15, it says, <coughs> As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Right? Here's what the disciples are saying. They're like, send them away. Let them just go get some food and fend for themselves. Jesus replied, They do not need you give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples did what? gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. It is our responsibility that as we break bread together to consider giving as well. Like who can we give it give some to? Who can we share this with? Yes, we share it with each other, but I hear sometimes we talk about leftovers, right? Have you guys ever considered taking some of those leftovers and giving it to somebody in need? Right? Maybe we can practice that. Maybe we can practice taking some of those leftovers and finding somebody in need and giving it to them. It says that the disciples 
gave them to the people. We got a lot of people around us that are that can use some of what we have left over. And I think the example here is that 12 basketfuls of broken pieces were left over. That's a lot. Right? I think God blesses that kind of behavior. I think he blesses that kind of action. If we take it upon ourselves, I know that we we make our singles fast sometimes, but we could take it upon ourselves to take that, to take those leftovers, take those leftovers and give it away. And to God be the glory. Amen.